It's the 23rd of August, and I'm really pleased, as always, Friday's rolls around and we get to have our conversations with Brent. But Brent, this week, had a suggestion the other day and said, can you have, you think we could have my, my friend Larry Pratt on with us on Friday? Now, who, what show host in his right mind is going to turn down that offer? And so we hooked all that up, and we've got Larry and Brent on, and Cody's joined us early because he's chomping at the bit on this is his topic. And uh, so we'll start the day off and welcome Brent and Larry Pratt and Cody, and I'm going to kind of turn it over to Brent since you initiated this, buddy, and let you uh, dribble here. Oh, I'd be glad to, Roger. I want to say a few words about Larry just quickly for those that may be listening to say, well, I've heard of this fella, but I don't, or I've seen him on TV, but I don't know much about him. So um, I met Larry first time in Northern Virginia when I was running for Congress. And we were at Morton Blackwell's Institute, and I met a few other well-known people there. But Larry came in to talk about the Second Amendment. Morton had asked him to come in. I didn't know who he was at the time. I was just learning about politics. <laughs> That's how I learned about politics, running for Congress. But uh, that was a rough ride. Rough ride. But uh, Larry came in. I listened to him, and I said, and I've had this happen with other people on other subjects. I said to myself as I listened to him, wow, this guy knows more than anybody I've ever listened to about the Second Amendment, and he was connecting dots for me that I had wondered about for years, and he did it quickly. And he was talking about the statutes and the colonies when the country began and what they required of, of young men and uh, the militia according to the common law is what I came to understand as the time went along. Well, then I continued to run, and Larry... I don't remember all the details how it happened, but he's president of gun at that time, gun owners of America. I found out later he wasn't the founder, but he was right there pretty close to the beginning the way I get it. And he can tell us more about that maybe, but uh, then Larry, Larry helped me. He came to my district and we drove around together and I got to know him a little bit. And he'd introduced me at, um, he introduced me at a few get togethers. We were in a large district covering 27 counties. And so, we got a little windshield time in together. Well, quite a bit, actually. And uh, that's how I met Larry. And ever since then, I have followed gun owners of America. And I did it. I did it because the NRA didn't support me when I ran for Congress. They supported my opponent. That was one of the reasons why uh, Larry was able to, to get involved to the degree he was with my campaign. Well, that's been a long time ago. I was a political animal then. I'm not so much now. I'm uh, pursuing other things in my law practice, but I said to Larry, I read an article that Larry wrote about Francis Schaefer Cox recently, and I said, I'm going to call him right now and ask him if he'll come on with us. He came back to mind again. So, Larry, it's good to have you, and I want to ask you questions, and I'm thinking there are other people that are listening and on with us that want to ask questions, but if I could start off. Uh, the conversation, Roger, if it's okay, I want to ask Larry if he can tell us anything about the story behind the story a little bit, as uh, Dr. Stan used to say, about the decision, Heller, D.C. versus Heller, and then the 
the companion case that followed it, um, uh, McDonald or city of Chicago versus McDonald. And I, Larry, you were in, you were a president of gun owners of America back in 2008, if I remember right. And you were involved and you did know what was going on and you had very definite opinions about those cases. Now I'll stop talking after all that. And please tell us what's on your mind. We know it's filled. Well, the Heller case was, uh, pretty significant. It didn't, uh, by any means, uh, touch all the issues involved in the Second Amendment, but it it was one that uh, a lot of the gun community was uh, somewhat reluctant to, to get involved in because the, the risks were high enough. Or, uh, unhappily, there are too many of us, uh, even in the legal community, which I'm not part of, that look at the Supreme Court as the last word on the Constitution and for a long time, I've concluded that that's not correct. The Constitution was established by we the people. And so we the people ultimately are the arbiters of what's in that Constitution. Uh, but the Hiller case, be that as it may, was a welcome um, redirection of the court, which had for a long time uh, been proceeding as if... Uh, uh, the Second Amendment was uh, something that belonged to the government, uh, to the militia, uh, but it didn't really protect any individual rights. And the Heller case said, no, it does protect individual rights. And uh, I think it's important that we uh, point out that it didn't say it established an independent, an individual right. It protects an individual right uh, because the the, the correct understanding of the Constitution is that these rights pre-existed the formation of the Constitution, and what the founders were doing was recognizing that these rights were inalienable, that they belonged to individuals, uh, ultimately because the founders said they came from God. And I think that's a proper understanding, because if they come from anybody else, they can be taken away. Well, Larry... Uh, I'm going to drop a, a question into a footnote here because I've never asked you directly, but I think I know the answer. Uh, you are of the Christian persuasion. Is that true? That is correct. Are you of the reformed tradition? Yes, I uh, belong to a, uh, a Presbyterian church in America congregation uh, where I've served as an elder and for many years now, I've been in charge of the Hispanic congregation. Uh, my wife is uh, from Panama. We speak Spanish at home. And so I was able to help develop this congregation uh, because of that. What city is that in? Just curious if I'm ever there. We're in Springfield, Virginia, right outside the Beltway, right outside Washington, D.C. Uh, you can get closer, but I wouldn't advise it. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. Now, I'd heard you say one time uh, back when 10 years ago, nearer to the decision in Heller, that you were disappointed that the court didn't go far enough. Is that, did I understand you right? Right. The, the court uh, went as far as it could probably because that's as far as Scalia could get uh, the, the judges, uh, at least a majority, uh, to agree to the opinion. Uh, that was ultimately produced. Uh, the uh, Supreme Court is very much like legislation, like uh, making a sausage. And as uh, Churchill 
observed one time. Uh, none of those are pretty to watch being made. <laughs> well, I've seen sausage being made. I've even participated in that one. I have to agree it because it's a mess. Uh, the intestines turned inside out, all that kind of stuff, you know. Uh, a matter of fact, one of the fellows that um, it, what um, illustrated that to me better than any other, I'm talking about the sausage, was a man that lived in Bedford, Virginia, back in your neck of the woods. And he told me um, that it was, it was his job as a little boy to get down in the creek in the spring where the spring was, turn the, the intestines inside out and wash them out. Uh, a pipe come out of the side of the hill. Well, that's ugly stuff, uh, but that is the nature of the game, and you've been involved in it a long time. Uh, so, Heller, and you also said, too, I think, Larry, you said that the lawyers, uh, this uh, Gura, I think was his name, uh, the fellow that yes. argued on behalf, yeah, he didn't go far enough, even in asking. Is that right? He, he didn't ask enough for the court. Go ahead. Right, and it, it, actually some of the uh, result of the Heller decision, I think, was uh, assisted by the Friends of the Court briefs uh, that were ultimately filed uh, following the, uh, the initial decision, which gave the appellate decision a little bit more material to work with. Uh, Gura was uh, uh, someone, I think, that was surprised. Uh, I, this is my opinion. I uh, it's not necessarily at all what he actually believed, but uh, I think he may have been surprised that uh, we got as much as we did, uh, and he wasn't willing to uh, to take the initiative and to and to push for these things. And you know, he was very happy to get what he could. Uh, we think obviously uh, more needs to be done because the idea that uh, we're petitioners hat in hand to ask the court to to agree that there are constitutional rights that the government can't touch, uh, that's a heavy lift uh, for a lot of uh, attorneys. It's a heavy lift in a lot of courts. Uh, the general mentality here in Washington, and I guess throughout the federal court system, is that the government is paramount, and that's just absolutely contrary to what the founders had believed, uh, and they had gone to war because the British crown had that very view that the government is paramount. And who are you uh, to suggest otherwise? Uh, so uh, philosophically or perhaps uh, emotionally, we're back to where we were in 1775. Oh, the fundamental uh, questions don't seem to change. And I no. one time, two, two things I want to get to, and I don't want to forget, and I'm saying this to help myself remember, I want to get to the 14th Amendment Incorporation and the McDonald decision, and, and you're, I want to take your temperature and uh, get your guts on that. And then secondly, I want to make mention of this. I interviewed not too many, that was 10 years ago, I interviewed uh, Judge Moore, and I also interviewed Mike Ferris on the radio. And I posed a question to them that goes right to what I think you're saying. I, and I thought that I would get a different answer, and I thought it would be just a matter of course. I asked both of them, who has the final word in America? Does the Supreme Court of the United States have the final word? Is it the final arbiter, right and wrong, from whose decision uh, there is no meaningful appeal? And I thought they would all say what I learned in high school when I had to take the Constitution course just to graduate. They taught us. I learned more there than I did in law school. They taught us that uh, the, 
the government are co-equal. And uh, we live in a constant Mexican standoff in America because that's what common law government is. And, um, the Congress has just as much right to say, now, duty to say. I thought they would say that, but they didn't say that. Both of them said, well, you know what the answer to that is. Kind of got irritated with me. The Supreme Court of the United States has the final word. Well, I have come to a different conclusion. Matter of fact, I think that's that's not the 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 um, the right answer. I think that it's everybody's duty to de determine for themselves and then follow the course of process. Uh, do you have uh, thoughts on that, Larry? Well, I'm surprised to, to hear that uh, Judge Moore uh, views the Supreme Court uh, as the last word. Uh, but uh, I guess when you think about it, uh, that's something that would have been inculcated in him in law school and uh, the many attorneys that he would have worked with uh, over the years. Uh, it makes me uh, admire his courage all the more uh, with his view uh, that you just uh, revealed uh, that he was willing to take uh, such strong stands as he did and to stand up to federal court decisions, which were clearly cockeyed. Uh, but um, in, in any case, uh, I'm glad we're having this discussion because hopefully uh, people will realize that these courts uh, have essentially usurped authority and gotten us to go along with the idea that they are the last word when, in fact, we the people are their founder. They wouldn't exist were it not for we the people. Uh, all the federal courts, save the Supreme Court, it could be done away with, in theory, current practice, probably not, uh, because of the, the likelihood of politicians uh, uh, giving way on it. But if the Congress were of a mind, they could abolish one or all of the federal courts, and the only remaining court would be the Supreme Court. Uh, probably wouldn't be a bad idea. It would uh, get rid of a lot of social engineering that's been done uh, by the legislation of the Supreme Court of the federal court system, which is clearly inconsistent with the idea that the founders had for the way our government is supposed to work. Can I, uh, uh, but, uh, can I throw in a yeah. historical footnote? There's a little clarity on this point. It's pretty interesting, and I just found it out recently. Brent and I talked about it one day. When Andrew Jackson was fighting the Second Bank of the United States, and he just barely law uh, won that battle, but the opposition took that case to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled there could be a national central bank. And Jackson said, well, they got their opinion, I got mine. And that line of thinking changed around the Civil War and the 14th Amendment. Yeah, uh, Jackson um, had said something about that's their opinion, let them enforce it. Yeah, right. Uh, which, <laughs> which I think uh, uh, underscores the fact that uh, uh, it is a weaker uh, branch of government if we look at it that way. I don't think the Jacksonian view is still very popular. Maybe it wasn't at the time. I don't know. But um, in any case, uh, I think when we properly understand what the founders were trying to do, they weren't trying to put a, a monopoly of uh, governmental decision-making in any one branch, and they ultimately uh, wanted to reserve the last word for the people, uh, hence the founding document beginning with we the people. Um, so I think that... Uh, 
uh, is something we should uh, express as often as possible so that we don't fall into some kind of judicial tyranny, assuming that, well, yes, they're the last word, uh, when in fact they are not. Uh, those of us who are having this conversation are among those right now who have the last word. Well, Larry, I need to make another statement about Judge Moore, and you reminded me of this, and also Mike Ferris, because both of them have been friendly to me, and uh, both of them have been helpful to me. And yeah. when, I asked, when I asked Judge Moore that question, he was in the heat of the throes of the, the onslaught against him, and it could have been in either case, I leave a room for this, I may have asked it in a way that uh, didn't elicit uh, what I was looking for, and I may have even confused them. So um, that's what I heard. I didn't. I didn't say, "Oh, you're wrong," because that would have been rude. I just moved on. But that's what I heard when I asked, and it is an important question. And most Americans, I have perceived, do take the view that the Supreme Court has the final word, and we need to be saying otherwise. I'm fully convinced it's not true. I'm fully convinced that every person in government, the president of the United States, every congressman and every Supreme Court justice and every judge that sits on the bench, bench and every juryman must exercise independent judgment if our country is going to continue with any modicum of freedom at all. And uh, that's what I push. Uh, we as Christian men, especially, uh, I don't say this to, to instruct anybody here on the show, but just to say it because it needs to be said. I think it's understood we are to, to exercise independent discernment uh, according to the will of our maker. And uh, we have that responsibility. It's a heavy, heavy responsibility, and it is the very mark of freedom. Well, let me get on, Larry. We wanna, I, I want to ask you another question about the 14th, about the 14th Amendment, but you can go ahead and respond, Larry. You, you said jury. Just to uh, yeah. pause there for a brief moment. Uh, the jury uh, is told in so many courtrooms uh, that they have to apply the law as the judge explains it to them, and that's just not simply true. Otherwise, we could get machines, computers, and the judge could feed in his uh, information, and out would come the result. The jurors are there to make their independent decision, uh, and that's something that is very precious to the preservation of liberty. So if the jury uh, comes to, even one person on a jury comes to the conclusion that something's just not right about what has been presented in that courtroom and he can't or she can't go along uh, with a decision uh, that otherwise uh, is being made unanimously, that in almost every court in our country, that one concern, that one reservation uh, can derail the whole decision and there will be uh, no finding of guilt uh, generally would be the way the jury may have been going. Uh, but that one person can block that uh, result and the government is stymied. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. And even, Larry, it's getting popular now for in the states to... Uh, require of the juror when they get impaneled to the, require them to swear that they will obey the instructions of the judge. And then they think once they've sworn to it, they can't disregard the instructions of the judge when it is true that if you discover that you've taken an oath, 
to um, to do something that's unlawful, that you have a duty to disregard your oath, a lawful duty. And I like to exactly. use an example in the book of Acts. Yeah, you're with me. I, I could sense we're on the same track. In the book of Acts where those fellows swore a blood oath, the murder of Paul the Apostle. Well, in that case, the Jewish fellows that did that, they had an immediate duty under our law, our common law, in every state in America, as far as I know, you have a duty to uh, disregard your oath or your agreement, uh, whichever it is, that's what conspiracy is all about. The only way to get out of a conspiracy charge, if you've ever been involved, is to disregard your agreement and make a clean breast of it and get out of it. Well, that's what we've got going. They're making people swear and then making them believe that, or making them believe in uh, persuading them to believe that they can't break their oath. And that is something that and I mentioned this to you, that's something that's stated explicitly, you especially, because I, you mentioned that you were Presbyterian explicitly in the uh, Westminster Confession, unlawful oaths. I forget which chapter it is. But at any rate, it's an important thing to understand. It's just as important today as it was back then. But um, go ahead, Larry, you're going to say something? And the, uh, the juror that's uh, troubled by uh, the way the majority is going uh, may... Uh, uh, be threatened with going to jail. And once or yeah. twice that I'm aware of, jurors have been imprisoned, but ultimately uh, that action has been overturned. And I don't think uh, uh, the way we are right now, you may hear these threats and blandishments come from a judge or someone else in that courtroom, uh, but at the end of the day, that's not going to be what happens. And so the juror should should absolutely feel that he's got an obligation before God. Uh, if he's going to have a good conscience, he better uh, decide the right thing. Well, Larry, I appreciate you chiming in and following and agreeing and supporting that idea because I see that as one of the greatest threats to trial by jury in America today is this oath that they're uh, really, in a way, forcing jurors to take and they don't by and large, understand what that means and what their duty is under that, and it's something that needs to be addressed more publicly. But let me get to McDonald because I want to ask you about the 14th Amendment. Now, <laughs> we talk about this on this show a lot, Larry, or not Larry, but Roger and I, talking to Larry now, Larry Pratt. By the way, we're talking to Larry Pratt, former president of Gun Owners of America. Uh, the decision in Heller said, okay, you can have a handgun, but that, and you can do it for personal protection. They said that to Mr. Heller, by the way, he was a model, uh, plaintiff or model defendant in this case, because he was a police officer, if I remember right. And so they chose the right guy. So he wasn't, he was a law abiding citizen. He wanted to have a gun in his house. And that case though, only applied the, the district of Columbia and federal property. Is that my, is my reading on that? Correct. Correct. It didn't apply to the States. That's my understanding as well, and so the issue was far from resolved as far as the rest of the citizens of the United States, uh, since most of us, happily, don't live in a federal enclave, and that's where the uh, McDonald case that you uh, have uh, referenced uh, became so important, because Otis McDonald uh, had the, uh, I would personally think, misfortune of living in a pretty tough area of Chicago, and even though it was illegal, he had gotten a gun for his own protection because, uh, uh, personally, I think you're crazy if, 
if you have to live in Chicago, not to have a gun to live there uh, because so many parts of that city are extremely dangerous uh, and there are Larry locked up or something here, Brent. Those yeah, just, there, he there he is. There he is. Yeah. Let's give him a minute. Once in a while, pleasant. Um, anyway, uh, McDonald uh, was a, uh, he's now deceased, but he was a wonderful Christian guy, an older guy, who uh, uh, was happy to be the plaintiff uh, in this case to, uh, if you will, extend Heller to the rest of the country. And ultimately, that was the result. Uh, and even though they really wanted to put him in jail, uh, uh, he was a well-chosen plaintiff or, or defendant, I guess. Uh, but in any case, uh, he um, uh, was a very observant Christian, a very mild-mannered uh, uh, person that spoke very uh, measuredly. Uh, so the idea that somehow he was a threatening person because he want, wanted to have a gun was a pretty tough climb. And uh, uh, Otis McDonald ultimately prevailed. And how, though, <laughs> I want to ask you to, to unscrew the unscrutable here, maybe. Um, the 14th Amendment was key to that case. In other words, the Constitution of the United States was written to just apply to the federal courts and the actions of the federal government. And it wasn't written originally for any of those provisions in the, the Second Amendment to apply to the states. So how did that happen that McDonald took Heller and applied it to the state, in this case of Illinois, which applied it to all the states? It's been long enough that I had to confess I'm, I'm a bit rusty on this, but I know that our attorneys had, uh, uh, Bill Olson and Herb Titus in particular, had uh, argued that no, uh, that properly understood that was a, uh, an empowerment of individuals, uh, that the uh, uh, 14th Amendment uh, didn't apply just to states, uh, but as the rest of the Bill of Rights uh, and this is a pretty generalized argument. That wasn't. I'm not doing justice to, to the arguments they were making, but that it did apply uh, to individuals, and ultimately uh, they were able to convince the court that uh, yes, in fact, that's correct. And Otis McDonald was well within his constitutional rights, uh, and I would say basically within his rights uh, under God uh, to be able to protect himself and his family. Uh, so. That uh, happily was the way it ended up, and Heller ended up being something applicable, if you will, to the entire country, thanks to the courage of this uh, very mild-mannered Christian um, uh, uh, senior citizen there in Chicago. Well, this morning I got up, and of course, you were on my mind, and the things that you've been doing, and I said, well, when I get up and I'm tooling around and I'm getting a cup of coffee and, sh and scraping my face with a razor, I'm going to listen to, uh, the arguments in, um, uh, Chicago versus McDonald before the Supreme court of the United States, because the case wound up there, that second one did. And I listened, uh, this morning, by the way, I would encourage anybody to do that. That's, uh, it's fun, uh, to listen to these guys banter. And in these cases, Larry, what is different about these Second Amendment cases that go up before the federal courts, especially the Supreme Court? They don't talk about minutia of law. They talk about the Constitution. They go back 
cases clear back for 100, 175 years and talk about them. That doesn't happen very often. Usually they'll say, well, if the case is more than 20 years old, we don't even want to hear about it. But with the Second Amendment, and I think Heller established this and uh, said that uh, the history of our people applies here. And the things that have become so ingrained in our, in our minds and are laid down in metal sod in America are so important. We need, just, we need to talk about what is it that America believed and does believe now. So that make, makes them different because those, they said, constitute what we call fundamental rights. And I would distinguish those from mere civil rights, as Roger and I talk about a lot. Fundamental. And I find that, I find that uh, the courts have a, a rough time or really don't nail it down. What is a fundamental right? I'm going to throw out what I've come to conclude a fundamental right is. I say it often. A fundamental right is a, a responsibility. A right does not accompanied by a duty. A right, using the terms of the old Germanic word, this is what it means, is, is a duty. It is a duty given to men. It is a duty to protect yourself. It's a duty to protect your family. It's a duty to carry a weapon. It's not an option. Uh, Granville Sharp, after long study, concluded that it is the duty of every Englishman to not only be armed, but to be expert. He uses the word expert at arms. And I count it to be a duty here also in America, and it's the very hallmark, as story says, the palladium, not only the reality, but the palladium, the, the sign of our freedom that we do these things, uh, carry weapons, loaded weapons, uh, in, in other words. And uh, the, the, um, the, the McDonald decision, when it came up before the court, they, they went back to history, and that's refreshing to me to see that the court is willing, at least in that case, to go back and say, wait a minute, who are we? That's the big question. Who are we? What is this animal that we call an American? Let's hog time and examine him for a minute and see what, what was on his mind back then. Because if we can't see who we are and where, where they were tending, we don't know who we are or where we're tending. So that uh, the 14th Amendment, though, uh, was key in that case in Chicago, wasn't it? McDonald versus Chicago to take those federal rights, federal, uh, federally recognized, I should say, and apply them to the states? Uh, yes, it was. And, and I know that in the supporting briefs that our attorneys filed in uh, the McDonald case, they were referring uh, to uh, some of these biblical concepts. In fact, I had written, uh, even though it wasn't directly involved in in uh, what the attorneys were submitting, but I had written some time ago a piece on what the Bible says about gun control, and one of the key conclusions that I had reached was something that you just articulated, that when we talk about rights, we're not just talking about what I can do, but what I must do, uh, that these are obligations, uh, that uh, the right to keep and bear arms properly understood uh, is also an obligation uh, that if I have the right to protect myself, the right that's not being exercised uh, is not going to be around forever, and it's going to uh, be happily taken over quickly or gradually uh, by those in government who are never comfortable with the people being able to make independent decisions. Oh, you make an excellent point. Fundamental, and I'm glad you even flesh that out more with the phrases. I want to repeat these. Can do versus must do. Can do versus must do. So our rights are not my option that I have and nobody can tell me what to do. Our rights are, if they're really fundamental rights, they're obligations. 
that's my conclusion as well. I like the way you put it. Now, also, I want to go ahead, The founders, if you look at the Militia Act uh, that was first uh, enacted in the 1790s, and even as it was uh, reenacted later on in the next century, uh, talked about uh, uh, it was fleshing out, if you will, the Second Amendment, but it went on to say that if you're a man between the ages of such and such, uh, you must have a a militia weapon, uh, and specifically at times they would say a rifle earlier, a musket, Uh, but you must have that militia weapon and you must have it available so that if you're called to service, if you're, uh, if there's a militia call uh, that a muster, you've got to show up with it or you're fined. Uh, They had civil penalties that would attach to the guy that uh, shirked that responsibility. And so, Uh You had a right to have a gun because uh, that was the way we uh, convinced King George that we uh, were going to go our own way. But you also had that obligation. Yes. And uh, it seems to me that a fundamental right, fundamental, and that was one of the arguments, is this a fundamental right? And I say to myself, come on, this is the Supreme Court of the United States. This is explicit in the Bill of Rights. uh, And you're asking if it's fundamental where have where'd you guys go to law school? Or maybe you did go to law school. Maybe that's the problem. I don't that's, know what the problem. <laughs> but, but fundamental, fundamental. My conclusion is fundamental right is a right that has been given, bestowed direct from the maker, right upon the person, with no intermediary, no government, no church, no institution, no nothing, no pope. But it's given right to the individual, as John Wycliffe said, under the vault of heaven. He is, it is bestowed, bestowed upon him uh, because he is made in the, out of the imagination of God himself. And so I have, for example, God gave me directly without any intermediary. He gave me governance over my tongue, First Amendment right to speech and the Fifth Amendment right to not speak. And those are responsibilities. Uh, That word right, having been hackneyed to where it means the wrong thing instead of what it should mean, a duty to govern my tongue, a duty, an affirmative duty. And uh, all of our common law has recognized this affirmative duty about the Second Amendment. Larry, where is, uh, you know, you've been in this um, particular area of law and uh, activism for many years, and so I'm asking this question because I believe if anybody has a feel for the trend of which direction this is going in the future, this second amendment and what the courts think about it, where do you think we are tending and where are the courts tending with regard to our duty to arm ourselves as Americans? Is it a good direction? Is it a iffy direction or is it a bad direction? Well, again, I, I want to qualify my remarks. I'm not uh, involved in the legal community, but as a lifelong, virtually lifelong consumer of uh, legal uh, representation in, in this area, it seems to me that uh, it could be worse by a long shot, but it's still iffy. Uh, we don't have courts that uh, have a proper understanding, by and large, of the Constitution. Uh, we still have this quaint notion that it's the judges who ultimately make the law. And as long as we have that uh, assumption that tolerates that tyrannical view, 
uh, we're never going to be uh, able to rest uh, in our rights. We're always going to have to be on the alert. But then uh, that's nothing new. The founders uh, were known for the expression that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. And that was something that uh, was their view having come out of a, a war for independence. But they still had that view afterwards. Uh, even afterwards, the very founders themselves were passing laws uh, against free speech at, within minutes almost of having passed the First Amendment. Uh, ratify the First Amendment. So the the temptation for those who've been in authority and government authority to extend beyond where those limits should legitimately go uh, is very very uh, strong. Uh, I was uh, I served one term in the Virginia legislature, and I can tell you from personal experience that you can very easily be seduced by. Uh, all of that power that's theoretically at your disposal, uh, that the uh, common assumption is, well, we'll just uh, sit down and decide what we want to do, and then that's going to be the law. And the idea that we put that against the light of the Constitution is just not something that enters most discussions when legislation is being made. And uh, I remember uh, uh, one time, uh, even with my views that I have, which are pretty uh, rock rib and limited government, and I guess could be described in this regard as libertarian, I remember calling home from Richmond, the Virginia legislature, uh, to uh, discuss what was going on with my wife. And we were the governor was pushing a tax increase. Well, all of the us Republicans uh, had campaigned against any new taxes. And I had stood alongside literally uh, the governor during this campaign, and both of us had articulated this commitment to no new taxes. Well, that lasted a few weeks once the legislature was sworn in, and the governor was pushing a tax increase, a new tax. And... Uh, so I was discussing all this and his arguments uh, with my wife. And at, at one point, uh, I must have sounded uh, a little bit somewhat persuaded by the governor's arguments. And uh, the phone almost jumped out of my hand. She said, you're not thinking of voting for that, are you? Uh, well, not having uh, then had any desire to sleep on the couch when I got back from Richmond, I <laughs> assured her, no, I wasn't thinking of that at all. Mm -hmm. um, subsequently, was one of the few votes uh, against it. And I remember how this just drove the governor crazy. And uh, he called me into his office for uh, individual meetings. And, and uh, I, I said, look, if you can explain to me how we can tell the people that voted for us uh, that there's some convincing argument uh, that we had to go back on our pledge and it doesn't make us sound two-faced, uh, then I'm willing to consider that. Uh, but if we can't do it that way, then I'm stuck with what you and I both had campaigned on. And, and he was really angry with that. And I said, well, it seems to me we're not getting anywhere. And so I got up and I left the office. And as I put my hand on the door to open it, uh, he said, I'm not going to forget this. Uh, so he was very upset that I was not playing ball. Uh, that's how it works. And both of us were only in that office uh, of uh, political office there in Richmond for several weeks. Uh, uh, and this was happening. Uh, the governor was already 
clearly fully committed to breaking his word and he wanted everybody else to do the same. And it was quite an education uh, to see that this is uh, one of the ways government can work all too easily. And the, the governor was not a, uh, uh, an evil man. He was not someone who had plotted to become a liar. Um, it's just that uh, uh, you get into the soup of government, into the swamp, and uh, the, uh, the methane coming out from that swamp can, <laughs> can kill you, can kill your independent thinking for sure. And uh, uh, that's what was happening. And when I observed that, I realized that, that uh, the founders were right, uh, that uh, government is a dangerous thing. It's like fire. And uh, unless it's kept controlled, it's going to consume you. Larry, that's a great analogy, and it's a great analogy because while I was running for office, this thing about the methane gas, <laughs> while I was running for office, there were four men killed by methane gas for this reason, and this analogy fits. It was at a little place just north of Moonshine, south of us, that they called it the Hog Palace, and it had a manure pit, and the first man went down in the manure pit to to fix the, adjust the, where they were sucking the stuff out, and he was overcome with methane gas, and he went unconscious. So his buddy saw him down there, went down to get him, and he went unconscious. And two other men did that, and all four of them died. And that seems to, of course, that was a tragedy. And they were young men, they had families. But the tragedy of, of it is it applies to politics, and I I came pretty close to, to getting in, as you know, and I could smell this methane gas and it does have an effect on you. And boy, that story you told about the governor, that explains what happens to men. Oh, he's a good man. He got there. What happened to him? And we all are in consternation trying to understand why he's not the guy he was before. And that's just a taste. Your story is important. And by the way, one other thing, Larry, you talked about, you say, I'm not a lawyer. I know you're not a lawyer, but the little known uh, secret among lawyers is that people who are experts in certain areas, experts, men who have given their lives to the stu study of those things, that's where lawyers get their information and their creative ideas. They're, they're, they're accustomed to, to just satisfying the courts, and they do not move ahead without their clients, without people who have real cases and controversies, who are bloody from injury. They can't think ahead unless that element comes into the, the legal community. So... Uh, I know you aren't a lawyer, but at the same time, you're the one that's charged with the responsibility, as we all are, of moving the legal community ahead uh, because they're blinded. They're, they're in a different world, and they can't – they're not living life where men live life, really. It's a whole different situation. So it's invaluable that folk like you are involved, and that's what I say to other people, too. Lawyers, are, in most cases, are cogs in the wrong machinery, and they need somebody – they need a plaintiff to fire them up, to invigorate their guts, who uh, to give them moral indignation. They have to have that from other people. Well, anyway, Larry, back to you. And I appreciate those comments about, about the Virginia legislature. That's revealing in the extreme. And I know that that's true. And I also know, having seen, uh, as I know you have, blackmail is an important part of politics. That's my conclusion, and I don't mean a little bit. And the Jeffrey Epstein situation seems to bring that out in an ugly, ugly way. Do you think I'm reading that right? No, and, and frankly, Epstein is simply an extreme example, but the blackmail can simply be uh, 
you're not going to get the campaign financing that you got in the last election if you don't play ball. Uh, you're going to get the opposition of all these powerful forces if you don't play ball. Uh, and so that kind of blackmail goes on all the time. Uh, and it, I, I would, I think uh, it's not that common that the uh, Epstein kind of applying legislators with booze and babes uh, is, is all that prevalent, uh, although certainly obviously goes on. Uh, but it's a lot more subtle when you realize that uh, you can blackmail somebody with just threatening him credibly that he's going to lose his office. Oh, no question. The booze and babe stuff, that's another good phrase. I, <laughs> that's like booze and booze in the brothel, uh, sauce and sex, all that. Uh, it helps freeze those ideas in your mind so you don't forget them because it, it all is always out there. And I saw it at the state level where I was and I saw it right beside me. I saw it happen and I had it, I had it presented to me on numerous occasions and it was a, an experience I didn't expect. But fortunately, I had some older fellows tell me when they told me this would happen, here's what's going to happen. And they described it in detail. One old fellow, one old county chairman said, here's what's going to happen. I said, doggone it. We called him Wimp, Wimpy Weedman. I said, Wimp, how do you know that they'll do that to me? He said, well, what do you mean? How do I know? He said, I've done it to them. So <laughs> I knew that I knew he was serious and it was, um, it was part of the game. And I was glad that he told me because I was prepared for it in my mind. I said, well, if it does happen, here's what I'll do. And I'll tell you what I'll, I said I would do, Larry. I would turn and run. And I did. First time it happened to Bone Gap Chowder, a place called Bone Gap. It happened to me, big crowd around and uh, a woman with booze on her breath and breath and uh, uh, scantily clad, like my dad used to say, not enough clothes on to wad an eyedropper or a thimble. And uh, got right up in my face and said some things that made it obvious what she was trying to do. And I turned and ran, and I followed that practice uh, for the next few years, and it served me well. But, oh, yeah, it's out there, and that explains the problem. Well, that being true, then, um, it's up to us to just keep putting the pressure on, I suppose. Well, let me ask you a more stabbing question, Larry. Putting the pressure is very key, absolutely yes. key. That uh, has been the whole MO of the lobbying program uh, at Gun Owners of America, which they're following even after I've left, and that is to, to use the the input of their of people's con, of legislators' constituents uh, through email, phone calls, whatever, postcards, written letters. It, it all adds up to the same at the end of the day, uh, and they've got to feel the heat. Um, I think it was Everett Dirksen. Um, who came from your neck of the woods uh, at one point was a Senate majority leader here in Washington. Uh, but in his uh, cigarette uh, impaired voice, he would uh, say a number of really kind of interesting truisms. One of which was, uh, uh, when I feel the heat, I uh, see the light. <laughs> you know, when he used to come on the radio, when I was a young teenage boy, um, my father would say, hey, boys, come in here. He said, Ev's on, Ev's on the radio. They called him, everybody called him Ev. And he's, uh, he'd say, now, don't listen to what he says. Listen to how he says it. That's what Dad used to say. And he did have a way of saying things that was, uh, was very... Uh, Charming. <laughs> he said, yeah, char I'm trying to look at the right... Yeah, see, I'm looking for the way to say it. But one time, there was a fellow secretary of state there, and he was from close to us, same county. And... Uh, uh, 
him and Dirksen were talking, and this got in the in the news media, but they were being complained against by their opponents, and uh, both of them together agreed that uh, these other people that were were complaining against them were nothing but Winnie Jennies, Winnie Jennies, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the reporter said, "Well, what's a Winnie Jenny?" They said, "Well, we didn't want to say it, but that's a that's a a Jenny ass in heat." And uh, they said, "Okay, well." Everett, then he used to like to use the word uh, terminological inexactitude. Somebody <laughs> uh, say something, he'd say, well, that's nothing but a terminological inexactitude. And then the commentator would often ask, well, what does that mean? He said, that means he's a liar. But I didn't want to say it. I like to say he's a terminological, you know, you don't say those kind of things in politics unless somebody presses you. Well, let me ask, now, we're getting close to, up on one hour. And at some point, Roger, I'm, I, I want to stop talking. And I want to let Roger take over. And I want, if there's people that have questions that want to ask you questions other than me, I want that to happen. But I want to ask one, uh, one more question that is uh, a hot potato in some ways. And uh, I, uh, I won't say more about it except to say this. I'll just ask the question. Does the Second Amendment and the militia clauses, the militia clauses of our Constitution, of which I take the Second Amendment to be one of the four militia clauses. Did the framers have in their contemplation anywhere that the female, the species, is involved in this this thing called the militia of the several states? No, I don't I think that was uh, in their conception. I don't know that they were specifically thinking of precluding women, but uh, uh, at the time they wrote uh, these founding documents, uh, this was all a responsibility of men. That's just the way society was organized. Since then, uh, we've had um, so much legislation be put on the books, whether it's proper constitutional or not, that uh, most people's understanding is that uh, military obligation uh, extends to women as well. I'm not sure that's a good direction, but then a lot of things have happened in our society that are not necessarily good directions. Well, I appreciate your candidness, and uh, you have a, a measured way of saying it. Uh, I like to say this, only a nation of craven cowards would even think about allowing their daughters to face shrapnel and bullets. And I've been saying it often, and I get weary of... of, of, of it's the men, the women, the women are are loyal and they're fully willing to do anything that they think they need to do to do what's right. In general, I've noticed this about women, my own daughters and my other women in my family, but that doesn't mean they should be doing it. And if men promote the idea to them, uh, then it becomes accepted. And I think it hurts us in the long run uh, in a lot of ways, but that's, um, that's my studied opinion. Trapping bullets may not even be the worst that could happen to a woman yeah. who's captured, and I don't even want to discuss it beyond that, but I, I think we all know what kind of terrible things could happen, and a lot of the enemies we have fought have shown just how depraved they can be, even against men, let alone if they had women uh, as their captives. I, I'm with you, Larry. I a hundred percent. And if there's a hill we ought to be willing to die on, from my perspective, I say this for myself, that's one of them. Because our armed forces uh, exist 
for the protection of our homes and our children. And it's not a good thing we ever go to war. There's always damage that's done when we do, and it's hard on families. It's hard on a lot of institutions we have here. But we'd only, if we should only do it to protect our homes and our, our wives. They're, they're the ones that keep the country going. We, we have to have them, and we must protect them. Their job is important, and their job is equally important, if not more important than the man's in many ways, to be the home guard. Well, Larry, I'm going to... Uh, go back to Roger. I have a lot of more questions I would want to ask. We don't talk all that often. Over the years, I try to listen to you. I've listened to you most recently. I mentioned this uh, not too long ago when we were on the radio. Um, your interview with uh, that Englishman that invaded America on uh, CNN. He's no longer there. Uh, Piers Morgan. That's his name. Piers Morgan. Piers Morgan. That was that was that was one of the most rude ugly interviews I've ever seen. I've seen some bad ones. That was as bad as any toward you. And again, I admired your measured way of answering and you didn't get flustered. He wanted to fluster you. He tried to make you mad. He called you names. He said you were the stupidest man he had ever met. Well, come on, Piers. You're a liar. You've met men stupider than that. But uh, I want to ask real quick, we're getting he got us there. a lot of members, though. Uh, people were really... <laughs> it turned out very nicely. Thank you very much. So and, you it, is, you were aware of that at the time, I take it. You, you know how politics works. And you know, uh, yeah, when he was doing that. So you were glad to come on and let him say that and just smile and say, well, thank you, Piers. And for this high level of intellectual discussion, I think you said something like that. <laughs> well, at any rate, Roger, I'm going to... Larry, did you I see nice thing about this? I can see you, Larry. We normally can't see each other. And so I can feel a little more when you've got something to say, because you'll put your hand up or your expression will change. And we ought to try that sometime, Roger, although we do pretty well. But uh, um, Roger, did you have any? Is there anybody chafing at the bit that wants to ask Larry questions out well, there? Well, since Cody called in before anybody hooked up, I might <laughs> defer to him first. <laughs> oh, okay. And then Chris. Chris has also joined us. And as we go forward, Larry, i got a couple of listeners that have followed our protocol that I think have some very interesting uh, stories to input that illustrate that uh, – most people have no idea what's going on here, and I've come to understand that it doesn't matter on your level of schooling. Okay, but let me defer to Cody first, since he was real the early bird today. Hey, Cody. <laughs> hey, well, thank you, Roger and Larry. Uh, nice to talk to you. I uh, appreciate all the work you've done for gun rights, and I, I finally joined uh, Gun Owners of America this year. I've been an NRA life member since I was. Probably five years old, my dad, five or six years old, my dad signed me up as a life member. And after some of their financial shenanigans this year and seeing some of the good cases you guys were doing with the bump stocks and all that, I said, well, I better join, join Gun Owners of America. So I did. But uh, I'm also a little bit involved with oh, some of the Illinois uh, groups. And uh, was that a protest? for their, their gun owners legislative day here a couple of years ago. And uh, last year when they were, you know, talking all these crazy laws, it was just before the gun owners legislative day. And I said, hey, we should all bring our long rifles and really protest, you know, not suggesting to do any anything, you know, any harm, but just to let them know that we're serious about protecting our rights. And 
somebody reported me to the FBI, and since, since then, coming back from Canada uh, three weeks ago, I don't know if they, they must have tagged me or something, because they demanded to search my computer and had two iPhones on me because we do some software development. And I told them that's a Fourth Amendment violation. I'm not carrying anything illegal. I'm not doing anything wrong. And they proceeded to seize my my two iPhones. And I don't, don't know if you've been involved with any cases like that where, you know, maybe they're trying to quell speech for any gun enthusiasts by harassing you when you cross borders. But if something that I'm interested in, Gun Owners America is maybe interested in taking through the courts, if, if you'd look at that possibly. That is a case that uh, gun owners could ultimately uh, get involved in. It's one that, uh, first of all, because of our resources, uh, we've never been able to get involved in cases, with one exception, uh, until after the courtroom level, when it's uh, at the appellate level. And if you could send our attorneys, send uh, uh, Eric Pratt is the executive director now, you could send him... Uh, a description of the case, maybe even uh, one of the briefs that you will follow. Uh, and then the attorneys can uh, base a decision on that. But if it's at that appellate level, it may be uh, the kind of case that uh, we would want to get involved in it. Uh, just on the face of what you've described, it certainly uh, oh, would be a standard. Okay. Okay. But only at the appellate level, you want the, you want the case already through the court and all that then? Yeah, we just haven't been able to get into the courtroom uh, at the initial level. Um, we've uh, uh, been active at the appellate level, and that's where our legal work has been done. Cody, you've got oh, okay. to exhaust your administrative process first. I, I suppose, yeah. I don't know. The, We'd love to be able to Go ahead. We, no. just don't have the, we just don't have the resources to do it until... The case gets up to that uh, appellate level where, as you oh, know, okay. so many cases sure. don't get that far and it reduces the uh, field that we have to consider and it, it makes it a little bit more likely that we're going to be able to do something. Yeah, it, it makes me real sad to be an American when I see how they, you know, they treated me like some kind of a terrorist and I'm a native-born American. Got some bad people let me get, let me get better. Got me doing it. Still got bad. Still got bad. bad. You're getting a little echo, Cody. Somehow. Cody. Yeah. Yeah. You got a radio on in the background? No. Huh. Well, I'll let know. you take over. Okay. Well, uh, mute yeah. out and let me query Mr. Chris and see what's on his mind this morning. Uh, Larry, this is one of our listeners that has had a tremendous last couple of years because he's been targeted on the uh, watch list evidently and I can tell you his life has been pretty close to hell for a few years with the intimidation from a lot of different directions. Chris, what's going on with you today? They had not arrested you again yet this morning I assume. Well not so far but first and foremost good morning and thank you very much Larry Pratt for coming on with Brent Allen Winters, a man I have extremely high esteem for and of course Roger and this group is a pretty astute group and particularly sensitive to trespasses on natural rights. Good morning. Larry, yeah, um, 
the situation, and let me, this is my first question I had for Brent also, and, and both of you gentlemen I think might want to feel this. It's my discerned opinion, and I've given quite a lot of consideration to this matter, that the Second Amendment itself is mostly a restatement of the castle doctrine, the duty to guard, protect, and defend the castle against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to guard the castle keep is extended to our individual homes because a man's home is his castle, I think, is the maximum law that we operate under. And they've extrapolated that to guard, protect, and defend the nation against all enemies, foreign and domestic, except now they've tried to unconscionably expand it to a global interest of that ruse of guarding and protecting police actions all around the world to empire build. Um, I do want to talk about the case that uh, I've been drug into and red flag imp implications if we get a chance, but I don't want to dominate the conversation. But I'm first interested in what you and Brent's perspective regarding that uh, castle doctrine-based Second Amendment ad aspect might be. Well, uh, the castle doctrine is ancient, no question about it. And it, uh, well, I think it was Pitt that best expressed it. Now, I'm going to try to remember the quote, he who never quotes is never quoted, my favorite quote. So I'm going to try to quote him here. He said, uh, the poorest man may in his cottage bid all defiance to the crown. Um, the roof may quake, uh, the storm may enter, the wind may enter, the rain may enter. But the king of England cannot enter. All his force dare not cross the threshold of the ruined tentament. That's the expression of the castle doctrine. In other words, you got to have a warrant uh, signed by a neutral and detached magistrate. You see, this whole castle doctrine and the Second Amendment and the uh, right against unreasonable searches and seizures, these are interwoven together in a continuous warp and woof, as our common law is. It's all together. It is all mutually supportive. You can't exclude one fundamental right from another. They stand and fall together. Life, liberty, and property, same way. Life, liberty, and property. Those three stand and fall together. They can be separated for purposes of analysis, but they exist together. And also, just like the right to remain silent exists, uh, stands and falls with the right to speak. You cannot separate, separate governance of, of your tongue uh, and say you can have one and not the other. Well, well, the same thing is true with the Second Amendment. The Castle Doctrine is part of that understanding. and But also the Second Amendment, though, goes further than the Castle Doctrine because the Second Amendment extends to keeping and carrying a loaded weapon. Uh, that's the only reasonable way to understand it. That's the way the folk that penned it understand it. And as um, this fellow by the name of Adam says, when the Larry had given me a book, I still have the book, way back when, when I was a political animal, it was by a fellow named Adam. I, Adams? Larry, I can't remember. It's, a, it's, it's called the Second Amendment Primer. Here, I have it right here. Do you know the fellow, Larry? No, I don't know him, but... Uh, well, let me, let me get his name. Yeah, this is a great little book. It's got, the name of it is The Second Amendment Primer by Les Adams, by Les Adams. And, uh, but he quotes in there and he says that when these fellows picked up their quills to scrive their name to the Declaration of 76 and the Constitution of the United States, when they picked up their quills, the reek of gunpowder was still hanging in their noses. 
In other words, the, 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 the imminent threat of war, if not at the time, was there. This was not some abstract, uh, dusty library, monkish idea they had that they came, out, came up with. No, no, no. They were facing violence when they wrote this. They understood how the, the evil of men. They understood what the old doctrine that uh, the founders, uh, founders, yes, our first founders talked about, the depravity of the human heart. And the danger, you know, Acton was a smart guy, but he was wrong when he said this, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. No, it doesn't. The corruption is already there. The power just exacerbates it. That's the problem. I'm reminded of that every day as I live with myself, for crying out loud, not to mention other men. <laughs> I laugh because I want to cry. Well, Larry, that's, what I, that's the way I see it, Chris. Larry, I'll, I'll yield to you. No, it's hard to add to that because those are the basic principles, I think, that do and should shape uh, the discussion uh, that the right to keep and bear arms is but one of the several rights that we've uh, articulated and enumerated uh, when we established our government uh, in order to uh, have a, a properly ordered uh, society with a government uh, as a servant rather than as a master. Uh, so... Uh, the Second Amendment, uh, I think, in seen in that regard, is but one of many uh, instruments that were uh, considered vital uh, and, and deserve being uh, called out uh, so that everybody in the world would know that these are limits that uh, you can't go beyond, and if you do, expect trouble. Well, I certainly appreciate both of those wise observations, and I think they generally are not far off from what my perceptions were. I will punctuate this with the fact that I have been, as a multi-jurisdictional law enforcement professional with many years behind me, although not retired, uh, it has been horrific miscarriage of injustice that I've been exposed to two egregious abuses of mass deadly force uh, perpetrated to silence my freedom of speech, my Title 18 USC 4 duty to expose criminality in government, that the federal, state, and local, and municipal, and NGO authorities have descended on me like a horde of locusts, doing everything in their power to destroy me and suppress my duty to speak out is an Ezekiel 33.6 watcher on the wall blowing my shofar, alerting the world and America to the dangers at hand. I think that's that impending violence that we're facing right now with this militantization of so-called public servants, which are really private foreign corporate mercenaries in corporate America today. Don't argue with that, well, Chris. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Larry, I uh, I sent you last night a copy of my book. It's about eight years old now. Uh, and a video that I did back in 2013 for Ed Snowden, which hits the high points of, uh, of what covers the book, just the high points. And I also sent you a certificate uh, from the State Department's own website called a Certificate of non citizen nationality and I'm sure you hadn't had a chance to look at those I dropped them to you last night but I hope that you do take the time to look into it because 
our information is real important and it's how they've taken control over all this. You just said the people be the masters instead of the government be the masters. This is how they've done it. And it's all done through the 14th Amendment. And I would say that this isn't just my contribution that my teachers, uh, John Benson and Glenn Ambort, who you probably are not familiar with those names, um, between the three of us, we've got over 100 years of research between the covers of that book. So it does not come lightly, okay? And uh, it's very okay. important because of, the, of some of the things that have been said. I mean, I heard several times in the first hour, constitutional rights. Well, and then I heard about fundamental and God-given rights. And what my read on this at this stage of study in life is that the Constitution doesn't give you any rights. It gives you protections, and God gives you your rights. But you see, they've switched it because we do have constitutional rights now. They're called civil rights, and they even have a, a government nomenclature for it now, and it's called birthright citizenship. And what they have so sneakily done, and, and this is proven because I've had numerous interactions with the State Department, three different passports. Uh, I, I, uh, I got my Social Security, applied for it with the affidavit. I've gotten a Florida state issued ID before I'm, I'm in Ecuador, by the way, before I left the States 11 years ago from the state of Florida as a non-resident, non-citizen of the United States. And what I've come to understand is that they set this up in, in the Civil War by passing the 14th Amendment. Actually, I've come to understand one of the great mysteries of my life is what caused the Civil War. And I come to understand now it wasn't slavery for sure, and it was, wasn't taxes, although that, the, the tariffs were the excuse. The reason for the war to bring in the civil law, as one of our good listeners has named it, was to pass the 14th Amendment, because these creeps knew they were going to run the world with it 100 years later. And very subtly, they created a secondary tier of citizenship uh, that spawned a group of laws called the Jim Crow laws, which were then validated by a Supreme Court decision in 1894 called Plessy versus Ferguson. I think I'm the only patriot researcher that's ever mentioned this case I've ever heard of before. And it's a key case to understanding what happened because it clearly designated the two separate statuses. And if you look into that case, it's an extremely interesting case. It happened in Louisiana, and they handpicked Plessy for this. It was initiated by a progressive newspaper in the New Orleans area. I've forgotten the name of it, but they took up national contributions in that time and got $3,000 contributions to take this case to court. That was a lot of money back then. And so yeah. they got Plessy. They took him to the train station on an intra-state railroad, not inter, intra, so it was just in the state of Louisiana. They had the detectives there to arrest him, and they had the newspapers alerted to be there to cover it. And they ran Plessy, who was nine-tenths white, only one-tenth black, into the whites-only railroad car. And they arrested him, made a big hoo out of it. They took it to the first level of court there in Louisiana, and the first judge's name was Ferguson. So when he ruled against them, they came after him. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they said, no, separate but equal. 
okay? And so no, you can't understand, it's very difficult unless you understand the legal background on this to understand how black restrooms and white restrooms could be equal, how white uh, dining cars and black dining cars could be equal. And the equality was that they both had a political status. One was secondary to the other, but they both had a political status. They went along and that, a couple of years later, they had another very important case which had a lot of high profile here when Obama was running called U.S. versus Wong Kim Ark because all of the birthers that were fighting Obama used that case because it's the best case on these issues of citizenship, denizenship, et cetera, that's ever been decided up there at the high court. And with that, they said, no, it's not just for blacks anymore. It's for Mexican peons and, and all these other classes too, okay? So they laid the superstructure so that when they came in and bankrupted the country in 33, they changed the form of government and they brought the 14th Amendment in, which hidden behind the 14th Amendment is the feudal system. And the way it's hidden there is in the first three words of the 14th Amendment, all persons born. And they have attached that, the, the way of transferring hereditament was always through blood. Larry's adjusting his screen there. The way previously to that decision, the way of transferring your hereditament was through your parents. And with that, changed everything to birthright citizenship and it brought in the feudal era because in that form, you, you, your parents were in a condition of servitude and when they had you, you were born into the same condition and the people are property in that system of law. So ever since March the 9th of 1933, everyone born has been born into this birthright citizenship represented by the birth certificate. And so that's the change that's happened and it's very subtle and uh, uh, it's difficult to get across to people because people have got to unlearn. You know, it's like Mark Twain said, it ain't what I know that's killing me, it's what I know that ain't so. And so what we've come to understand, and this has been verified by the federal government, is that in March the 9th of 1933, what they technically did was shift the presumption of law according to your birth. Now, this has been proven by one of our real good students out in Austin, Texas, who has two daughters and went to the hospital there in Austin where both daughters were born and got this straight from the hospital people that do this. And when the woman was confronted with it, she went back, she said, hold on a minute. And she goes away for about 10 minutes and she comes back out there and says, you're not going to use anything I tell you against us, are you? That's the first thing's out of her mouth, okay? And so here's the process when a baby is born anywhere in the United States, according to this woman at this hospital in Austin. The, the, the child is born and there is a document that is generated called a verification fact sheet. And on that piece of paper has all of the baby's vitals. And at the bottom, there is space for the mother and father to sign. And that document is never signed by the mother and the father. It's taken over to a government terminal, computer terminal, that's in every hospital in the country. 
and the information is input into the computer. It's then transferred to the Bureau of Vital Statistics where that information generates a birth certificate which they take and put into a safe which is under armed guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's the birthing process in the United States today. So when I, without getting into a whole bunch of it, because we could spend hours talking about this literally, I would say if, if anything tickles your fancy that I put the resources there that you can follow up on, I think you'll find the if you do get into the book, it was written by my teacher named Glenn Ambord. He, I wrote it, but the manuscript, Dim and John, my teachers edited it. And Glenn won a case at the Supreme Court. The feds came after them. They only taught six months back in 1992. And they came after them with both feet, shut down all their offices, uh, raided them with armed guards. And they'd only been teaching six months. Now, I don't have to tell you or anyone else in the audience, the feds federal government doesn't act that fast for anything. So obviously they saw a, a, an item of great import here and they sent them off for a collective 15 and a half years in federal prison on trumped up charges with perjured testimony, et cetera, et cetera. No surprise there. But uh, it's a very serious work and I think it will shed new light as it has to the people that listen to this show. It, this information changes lives. And what makes me so happy today about Brent initiating it, this, this show is that we get to get you on here and at least run this in front of you uh, because the information is about ready to take the next big step. And it's super important information. And it's so subtle. I mean, you wouldn't believe we had to work on... Brent, how many years did we have to work on you? Well... Uh I understood what you were saying, Roger, and I still understand what you're saying, but what I, that, what I like to stress is this, that it's impossible, no matter what the government does, to enslave me, because as a matter of law, um, slavery is not possible. My rights, as the Declaration says, my fundamental rights, my responsibilities are direct from God, and uh, they can get me, they can fool me. Those guys, the, the evil empire, the useful idiots of it, can fool me into thinking that I am enslaved to them, correct? But that doesn't mean it's true. And uh, I think that's what you're. We we agreed. That's what you're saying. You are not enslaved to them. They are. They're trying to. They're defrauding you, and they do it from any angle they can do it. You're focusing on the Fourteenth Amendment. You're focusing on the Fourteenth Amendment, and with that, of course, comes all of the taxing system and the Federal Reserve Bank, and it's so complex that uh, we can't even we can't even untangle it all. As a matter of fact, much of it is senseless. And what they say to us is senseless, is senseless with reference to the 14th Amendment and the things that you're saying. Well, what you're driving at, Roger, to get straight to the point, is the passport application. And to, to submit an affidavit to get rid of the presumption, and you have people do that, and it's not a problem. Um, I, it, yes. It works. Uh, and that's how I found this, Larry, is when I, I moved initially to Argentina back in 2008. And, and I had been studying this for over 15 years, and I understood the two statuses, and I understood a lot of it, but they changed the labels all over the place. You know, you got to understand and take it back to basics. You're either free or you're bond. 
one of the two. It's like you're either pregnant or you're not. And what Brent's saying is technically correct, but with fraud, they've, they've shifted the presumption of law, and unfortunately, they've got, it's given them the power, and until that presumption is set straight, and you've got to do it with a specific person, the Secretary of State, and in some sort of a declaration, you've got to declare what Brent's saying. I've got God-given rights, and when you do that and alert that one specific person, they recognize it. And we've got numerous examples. Uh, I was hoping Daryl, so I'm going to see if I can prompt Daryl to call in. Daryl's one of our real good students. He's a retired airline pilot trainer. And uh, uh, he lists, he heard me on one of Joyce Riley's show. I, I was on Joyce Riley's show three times. Uh, Joyce and I were friends. And um, he heard one of those shows. He went out and bought the book. He did the reading. He, he'd filed an affidavit. He'd done everything before he ever called into the show. And he's a regular contributor now. But he has purchased some firearms in this new status. And here he comes now. He responds real quick. Uh, so let me welcome Daryl. And I'll have Daryl tell you a little bit from his point of view and his experience because it deals directly with the gun issue, which is, you know, what we're focusing on today. So, Daryl, welcome, as always. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Roger, Brent, uh, Mr. Mr. Pratt. It's uh, been a real pleasure. Uh, I've very much enjoyed uh, hearing, hearing everybody uh, talk about these important issues. And, uh, you know, the, the wonderful thing about coming in late to the show is that I get to pick from the menu that's been laid on the table. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, be before I would re relay my, uh, my anecdotal uh, experience uh, about uh, my particular applying my, my gun rights, as it were, uh, I just wanted to go back to what Brent was so... Uh, at you, Larry, and what Brent were speaking to with the uh, the Castle Doctrine, and uh, and how that applies to my subjective rights, and uh, I like the word inviolability, and uh, in as a being inviolable. That's what I see the, ca the Castle Doctrine. Uh, that's how I keep it in my mind uh, as as an action part of my spirit. And, uh, you know, anytime I feel uh, the violation occur, I, I, I understand that, uh, uh, you know, it's coming from outside of me. Uh, so uh, on this matter of the, uh, the, the Second Amendment and gun rights, um, I, I'm a, I guess it would be safe to say I'm an advocate, uh, and uh, I have plenty of shooting irons. <laughs> And uh, I, I don't want to be uh, haughty, but uh, I would probably I would probably fulfill the requirements of the early militia in that I I practice uh, gun control every day with at least uh, a a group before uh, ten o'clock <laughs> every day at about two hundred yards. So uh, I can shoot a group at two hundred yards, and I do it about every day. Uh, and uh, uh, on my own on my own land here. So um, uh, handguns, uh, I shoot those every week, um, and uh, I load my own, and uh, I maintain my own uh, in my machine shop. So um, 
I, I'm pretty I'm pretty invested in um, uh, maintaining and uh, these rights, these God-given rights. So I have a pretty good relationship with the local uh, shooting iron store. And uh, about, uh, I don't know, I guess it was about four years ago, wasn't it, Roger? Uh, I go in there one day, I fill out the, uh, the background checked information. Uh, I, I take their form. I, I'm sure you've, you've had the occasion to fill a few of those out yourself, have you not, Larry? Indeed. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, so I fill out the form, and I, I get down to the point where it's saying, uh, well, are you a U.S. citizen? And uh, uh, prior to this, I had, I had sent in an affidavit to the State Department um, reclaiming, uh, uh, well, telling them what I wasn't. <laughs> With my passport application, I, I told them that I was not a U.S. citizen and, and gave sight and reason and basis for that, and that if I was in error, please, please respond. Well, under penalty of law, um, and severe penalty at that. So uh, I, I submitted, uh, having submitted that form uh, for my passport application, I got my passport back. And, uh, with an, uh, and, and my affidavit was unrebutted. So based upon that principle, uh, moving forward, when I filled out my uh, my firearm transaction record and background, I lost Daryl. Uh, no, yeah, no, he's there. I'm I'm hearing him. Okay. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Can you hear me? Can you hear me, Brent? Okay. So, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I fill out their application form and I hand it across the uh, counter to uh, my friend Ron, who is. Uh, regrettably now deceased, and he, he goes down through it, and he looks at it, and he, he gets this frown on his face. <laughs> he just frown. And I go, what's wrong? And he goes, he says, well, you got it marked here that you're not a U.S. citizen. This isn't going to work. They're going to reject us. And I go, well, I, I, and then everybody else behind the counter and, and around the counter, they all sort of stop, and they look at me. Not a U.S. citizen, huh? <laughs> and I, I smiled and I said, "Well, just go ahead and run it. Just uh, maybe we'll learn something here. Who knows? Give it a try." So he walks over to the phone. He calls up the uh, the the the, uh, the center of of uh, superior knowledge there, and they uh, he he's going through it, and he gets down to the point where uh, I. Uh, have checked that I'm not a U.S. citizen and uh, that I'm something other, and this something other is a is a U.S. national. And uh, <clears throat> the guy on the other end, uh, there's a pause, and and there's this kind of weird look on Ron's face, and and he looks, he kind of holds up his finger, he looks at me, he says, "Well, hold on a minute." He says he's checking. Well, the guy has gone off the phone for about three minutes. He comes back and he goes, "Yep, yep, that's okay. Yeah, he he's he's fine. Okay, that that's uh, I hadn't heard that before, but yeah, he's okay." <laughs> and so the the transaction was completed, and I walked out of there with my shooting iron, which just happened to be a forty-five long colt uh, peacemaker, uh, and the uh, uh, so he hangs up the phone. 
and uh, everybody's kind of standing around because they're all sort of interested in this. And my comment to him was, I said, well, I guess we learned something there, didn't we, everybody? And there was some kind of mumbling, and I said, I said, now you understand why I'm a first-class citizen and you're a second-class, and if you ever want to know more, just ask me. <laughs> <laughs> and I smiled. I, I just sort of smiled and, and didn't rub it in. And, uh, uh, and, and over the course of the, the, the subsequent four years, Larry, um, I've had uh, many occasions to uh, share more information with the owners of that particular shooting iron store and uh, have become actually quite good friends with them. And, uh, but this is a perfect example. Now, I, I've experienced no recrimination whatsoever uh, at, at any level about any of this, uh, including the uh, Internal Revenue Service. So um, I have real-life experience as to the efficacy of taking and acting on this information. I, I believe I should pause there. Um, Brent, I wanted to address something you had said earlier before Daryl came on. Uh, voluntary servitude is legal by omission in the 13th Amendment. And Larry, that's what they've put us in as a condition of voluntary servitude. And that's why you can volunteer out if you understand what they're doing. And they recognize it because when they're confronted with it, they know it's fraud and they can't do a darn thing about it. You know, some sometimes I think we give too much credit to judges, and uh, I think we think, well, they understand what they're doing. I don't know that they always do. Now, when it comes, for example, and this is why I brought it up a while ago, Larry, about the McDonald case in Chicago and this whole idea of incorporation, and I listened this morning. Of course, it's a new kind of a doctrine. Nobody foresaw it. Incorporation to the states of the rights, the fundamental rights of the Constitution, and I listened this morning to those arguments. It was about an hour long uh, before the Supreme Court in the McDonald case because it got thrown back to the Supreme Court, and then they threw it back to the Seventh Court to, to follow their directions. And boy, did they go into detail about the 14th Amendment, and I didn't realize it until I started listening, trying to understand what that 14th Amendment is. Here we are, a hundred and how many ever years later, after the 14th Amendment, and we, we still don't really have a, an agreement upon what that darn thing means. And what I'm beginning to ask myself is this. I mean, Scalia, he has his idea. It was about substantive due process. He says it's just silly to even say such a, such a thing. It's an oxymoron. And then, of course, the others say no, and uh, this is very important. But uh, if things are incorporated through, to the states through the 14th, is it done so in a lesser way? Is this something, Larry, that you're familiar with? Is this something, that, Larry, in your mind that even matters? Let me put it that way to you, the 14th Amendment. Well, it may matter, but it's not something that day-to-day -day we've had to deal with. Uh, we have to deal with getting people elected, getting legislation uh, stopped or moved. And uh, these are not arguments that come up. Um, let, let me add a couple of things. Uh, Larry, I know you're very familiar with the Code of Federal Regulations. Um, and if you go, there's 50 titles. And if you go to 49 of them, they're jurisdictional statements on the front page. And their jurisdictional statement in all but one are residents. Residence is the last word in the 14th Amendment, the state wherein they reside. 
So when they're asking you if you're a resident and you're in the state, what they're asking you is not, do you live there? It's which set of laws are you under? And you can find that out in Webster's Collegiate Dictionary because the two definitions of resident are right there next to each other. And one of them says, the first one is the geographical one, and it says the act or fact of living or dwelling in a place for some time. And the second definition is the act or fact of living in a place for some time for the receipt of a benefit or the discharge of a duty. So when they're asking you that question, they're asking you which set of laws are you under. The parallel I would draw on your, on your McDonald case and the other one and how they connect, Brent, is one of my early legal teachers that hammered a lot of this stuff into my head had, uh, it was, he wasn't real computer literate, he kept everything in three ring binders. So he'd make copies and he had all these books in the trunk of his car, 20, 30 of these books. And in one of them, we were looking through and I was shocked. Do you know, Brent, that the Title 26, the Internal Revenue Code, was never passed by the Senate or signed by the President. It was only passed by the House of Representatives because they have exclusive jurisdiction over Washington, D.C., but yet it applies to all the people in the states the same way that they've applied the McDonald case from the Heller case. So it's an extension of that to you. And, you know, they know if they tell you you're a serf, that's tyranny. So they rigged this system to where they can ask you those questions of say, hey, Larry, are you a citizen of the United States? Hey, Larry, are you a resident? And of course you check both of them. And what they're really asking you is, are you in voluntary servitude under the scope and purview of the 14th Amendment? And you answered yes, not understanding what is happening. And now they've got the magic phrase, the consent of the governed. Well, amazingly, in the... Larry, were you going to say something? No, 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 that's fine. Oh, okay. In the fourteenth, in the the arguments of the McDonald decision, the Fourteenth Amendment, they even talked about. Well, maybe it was back when they were before the Seventh Circuit, but they talked about uh, who does this Fourteenth Amendment apply to? Um, does it apply just to freed slaves? Uh, that was really what they were ultimately trying to get at. I don't know if they went that far, but that's really what they were talking about because when it was passed, it was meant to apply to freed, it was freed slaves. It wasn't meant to apply to sodomites who wanted to get married or lesbians, as is often said today. And uh, was it intended to incorporate the, the, uh, the, um, the Second Amendment? But let me, let me throw this out, Larry. I want to I know if you've ever heard of this idea. You know, they talk about incorporating to the states, as they did to McDonald, the Second Amendment, through the 14th Amendment, so it applies to the states, it seems to me that if there are four militia clauses, and there are, and three of them have been ignored for about 175 years, <laughs> but they're still there, and uh, if they're there, and they're, they're good law, that is the law of the land, the way things ought to be done, uh, it seems to me that um, the states are precluded by those four militia clauses from impairing or infringing in any way the the right to keep and bear arms because if they do then those four militia clauses are uh, a nullity have you heard that argument made in the courts no well i'm uh, i'm not happy that you haven't but i it tells me that i think it needs to be made 
the federal government, the, the, the fourth or the militia clauses in the Second Amendment apply to the states without incorporation because the Constitution is inoperative. Those four clauses are inoperative without it. Um, and I think that ought to be ought to be brought up. But let me ask you this, Larry. I'm going to get to one other point. What is the more specifically? What is the trend of our rights under the Second Amendment that are, the Constitution protects? You mentioned this a little, but I, I I want to give you an opportunity to go in further detail because I know you have to have ideas in your head and see trends that we don't see because you're you paid attention to it so so very long. Where are we going? You said that the courts are a little iffy on some things, but we're headed in a more positive direction than we have ever been headed. Uh, what do you see could happen given the color of the Supreme Court of the United States and what, what the court consists of now? Well, trying to speak about the, where the Supreme Court is going is kind of like going up to uh, uh, the summit of Delphi in Greece and hearing from the fakers that uh, uh, were bringing the, the word from the gods. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, we, we can hope that the, uh, the last two justices put on, particularly Gorsuch, are going to take the court, uh, uh, going to move the court in a little bit better direction. But I don't think we're going to uh, have the court on a firm course compared to where it's been anyway uh, until maybe uh, we get another one or two new justices because I don't, I, I don't see Kavanaugh as a fighter. Apparently, Corsage is somebody that's willing to make an argument and stick to it uh, pretty well. Um, of course, Justice Thomas has been stalwart, and Alito's been pretty good. But I don't think we really have a majority on that court uh, if push comes to shove. So uh, we uh, hopefully we're not going to see cases come before that court until we've had... Uh, another one or two justices added to the ranks, and we better be praying that 70-some-year-old Justice Thomas is good for another uh, 20 years or so. Well, Larry, given all that uh, and all the discussion we've had so far, um, I like to say to people uh, what they can do. Now, you've been at this a long time. You tried a whole lot of different things, and I have to conclude, Larry, that you've said to yourself many times through all of your struggles in these areas, not to mention English First, which you were involved in at one time, you've kind of, not that you don't, wouldn't think that's important, but you've moved more to the Second Amendment as time go, has gone on, and you've then focused your efforts there. Did you do that because you believe that is the linchpin, the key the key question that we must answer constitutionally and we must answer right, is that why you put so much effort into it? Is that where well, we should be? Certainly that's the more elegant explanation, yes. Um, but there, there's also a, a practical sense that long ago uh, it, it occurred to me, I could see uh, from referenda that had taken place uh, in, I think it was Maryland and Pennsylvania, uh, that... This was a, an issue that, unlike uh, the liberties of uh, real estate agents or, uh, you know, the more arcane issues that uh, might be before the courts, this is the issue that has a constituency 
that defeats politicians. And for politicians, I really think some of them are more afraid of being defeated than of dying. Uh, which shows <laughs> how godless they are. Because uh, when they die, they find out that uh, what their what their priorities should have been. But in any case, uh, the uh, this is an issue which uh, you can you can even uh, deal with broader constitutional issues uh, than just the Second Amendment, uh, because the the Fourth Amendment uh, would come easily to mind if you're not secure in your in your possessions and in your home, uh, then your Second Amendment uh, liberties uh, really don't have much, uh, have many legs on them at all. And you could kind of make that kind of analysis right through the rest of the Bill of Rights. Uh, so the Second Amendment uh, is part of the work and woof of the liberties that we enjoyed and decided to enumerate and protect in the Bill of Rights. Uh, but it's the one, it's maybe a, a shift to another analogy or metaphor, it's the canary in the mine shaft. It's, it's so obvious that if the Constitution's in danger, we're going to see the effort being made to endanger the Second Amendment. And I think politicians, whether they understand it in, in any articulate sense or not, realize that they can only push their regulated state so far uh, um, until they get rid of the Second Amendment. They've got to have a disarmed people before the bureaucrats can safely invade our homes and tell us what to do at our businesses. Correct. So it's there, or Roger. Did, I don't want to cut you off. Are you going to no, say something? No, I, I said correct about oh, them okay, having good. to get rid of that to continue the enforcement of the regulatory state. The understanding the administrative state is understanding what's gone on because they didn't have an administrative state before they switched the form of government on March the 9th of 33. They had to build it afterwards because they didn't have any serfs before then. The other thing I want to say is you hear constantly these days, even on mainline mainstream, neo-feudalism, neo-feudalism, neo-feudalism. And they're constantly bringing that up as a comparative analogy to what's going on. Well, may I add, you can't have any type of feudalism without serfs. Okay, uh, we got two guys that have joined us. Doug joined us from Arkansas, and then our mutual friend Harvey Wysong joined us from Tunnel Hill, Georgia. And Doug, if you don't mind, because Harvey knows Larry for many years, I wanted to bring him on. Hey, Harv, welcome back, man. Glad to have you call in. Hey, well, thank you. You, you know what you interrupted with this doggone radio program, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> My reading of your book, Sovereign to Serve, I'm, you know, I, I, Roger, you ought to be more thoughtful of my my education, the more mindful, more respectful. Uh, here I am working hard, and I said, I wonder what they're talking about. And then it does turn out to be a good topic. Uh, let me just make a comment about two things. First of all, speaking of the book, Roger, you know, I never did get all the way through. So here I am going all the way through. And really and truly, my hat's off to you and my apologies to you as an old friend for not paying uh, the closest attention to this book 
years ago when it first came out and i was just you know distracted and i you know i got i went off chasing butterflies you know how that goes but this book is well researched and it is well written and you have thought thoughts that i ain't thought and uh i'm indebted to you for for sitting down and i know what a what an ordeal it is to write even a pamphlet, let alone a book. So uh, I really do. Well, thank you for. Let me give the credit. Where yeah. I wrote an eighty-page manuscript in a very inspired week back when I was still in the states, and I turned it over to my teachers, and they turned it into that book. And the the uh, the hard-hitting impact of the book really belongs to John and Glenn because it was the manuscript I wrote wasn't anything like that came out on the other end. And I will tell Larry and anybody else that hasn't read it that book changes lives because it changes the way you think, and you can't change the way you think without changing the way you live. Yeah, that's exactly right. You've got to change the way you think, and. Uh, but anyhow, uh, to all who contributed to the writing and the publication of that book, um, uh, my my hat is off. I am uh, I am impressed every every page. I'm impressed more, and I'm also grateful. So Thank thanks to everyone. Thanks, Harvey. Now, may I say something about the Second Amendment issue? I have become more focused on the Second Amendment as well. And uh, I've, I've got some other things I have to do to put money in my pocket. But, uh, but the Second Amendment is simply the right to life. That's all it is. Yep. I've got a right. It's not firearms. It says bear arms. That's swords, knives, clubs. Anything else that you can pick up to defend your life is an arm uh, in the sense of, of the uh, amendment. And you've got a right to pick up that club, whether you are defending your life against uh, uh, vagabonds in the neighborhood or government agents who threaten your life. But since the government agents were the ones most likely to uh, threaten a person's life. That's why it had to be put into law that we have a right to life because the government has the ability to write laws that say you don't have a right to life, uh, which is what the Second Amendment is. And so if you've got, if you've got no right to enforce a right, then you don't have a right, do you? No. And the only way to enforce your right to life when it's threatened is by use of uh, violence, physical force. I don't care whether you throw acid in their face, whether you choke them out, whether you, if you uh, eviscerate them with your hunting knife or uh, shoot them with a 105 howitzer. Doesn't matter. Um, you've got that right, and there's nothing that anybody can do to take that away, we it was it it was issued to us. That right was issued when we were conceived. We have a right 
to life, God-given. And any law that impinges on that is invalid. But can we enforce our right against the government? Well, if there are enough of us and we act in concert, yeah. They're terrified of that. So it's, They're terrified of that, I promise you. Oh, yeah, they are. And um, I, I, I'm just um, one who I'm, I'm sure... Um, government has me somewhere on a on an undesirables list but uh rightful rightful right rightfully so i might add (laughs) 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 uh harvey i got another call i'm going to preempt doug again because i want to i want this gentleman to get his two cents in and that's ike our Patrick's assistant there from Memphis, who Brent also knows. And I'd like to get Ike's read on this. Ike's a pretty interesting gentleman with an awful lot of legal experience. Hey, Ike, how you doing? Well, Good to hear from you. Hey, it's nice to hear from you guys again as well. How are things? Good. I didn't catch, I didn't catch the beginning of the show. Uh, so shame. I'm at a loss of words. Shame on you. I'm at a loss of I know I'm running. I'm running. I'm actually in Arkansas right now. <laughs> I'm ripping and running for for the company. So, yeah, I hadn't had opportunity to listen in today. What's the subject? Uh, Second Amendment and and our book. Let me ask Ike here because Ike's just gotten turned on to our material in the last six months or so. Have you finished reading the book yet, Ike? Uh, yes. You want to give yeah, it, you want to give us you want to, as a black man who's very steeped in the law how what's your reaction since you've had a chance to digest some of that to the book yeah my reaction is my reaction is, is that it is priceless I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of information uh, and uh, knowledge that uh, a lot of blacks are caught would be uh, would be willing to know and to execute simply a matter of getting them out. But you all were talking about a, a gun as I came on. What was that about? So the whole show's been well, about guns Larry, for the most part. Go ahead, yeah. Brent. I was just going to say, Larry Pratt is our guest today. Larry Pratt is former president of Gun Owners of America. And so we've okay. been talking about the Second Amendment. And uh, and he's there. He's there. He's here. If you want to make a comment uh, to him or ask a question of him. Well, I just, I just, I, I was, I was interested because I caught the end of the conversation, and you know, we don't, you don't speak on on things that you don't have a full understanding. Well, uh, I, so I was just trying to find out what was going on. I'll I'm say at, at the end of today, I'll upload this show to Castbox, and it'll be available. And I encourage you to go back and listen to the first what you missed. Okay. Okay. You say cash box? Ca- cast, C-A-S-T, like casting a rod or a cast. Oh, net. cast box, yeah, cast Dot box. FM. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I can do that. Okay. But uh, my experience is, my experience is, gentlemen, is pretty much is, has been the same. Uh, uh, Brent, I'm, I'm still, I'm still dealing with the devil, you know, as we often do. Uh huh. On a daily basis. Well, I'm still dealing with the devil when, when, when it comes to. Uh, the things that we need to do, uh, and, and, and protecting our constitutional rights. I actually, had some police officers come down the other day, and this is the problem for uh, me as a black man. Black police officers are a problem for me. Now, we actually had 
some police officers to come down to uh, uh, to Patrick's shop, to his business, to his lot, and uh, they were not. They were. They were basically. There were a lot of rookies there, but there was one gentleman who's been on the force for a while. Uh, so when I when Pat called me and I arrived there, uh, I asked him. I said, "Well, uh, I said, do you have a warrant?" He said, uh, "No." I don't have a warrant or anything. We, I just want to know if the car is here. I said, well, yes, the car is here. I said, but you're going to need a warrant to come onto the property to search for the car or to even take the car. You need a warrant, you know. And uh-huh. the white officer, the white older officer, he was, he was, you know, understanding. He was like, well, I'm just trying to verify. I said, yes, sir, I told you the vehicle is here. But you cannot come onto the property without a warrant. And as I'm as I'm sharing that with him, he didn't know that from that that the, even the area that he was sitting on with his vehicle trying to look into the gate, he didn't know he was on the curtilage of our property. <laughs> he had already violated the Fourth Amendment. And my my problem came when the uh, uh, other black officers arrived, and they were like. Look at him, acting like he runs something. Uh, who he think he is, you know, and this, that, and the other. And the older white officer told him, he said, no. He said, I don't care what you say about him, what you think about him. Everything that man is saying to you is correct. Everything he's saying uh-huh. to you is correct. So they couldn't, they couldn't. Throw. So now I've got a situation here when I'm dealing with my, when I'm dealing with the constitutional rights of the company and of individuals in the company and myself. Now I'm not only having, I'm dealing with hostile individuals because as a black person, you're not supposed to know these things. That's right. You're supposed to react. As a black man, <laughs> yep. you're, you're supposed to just do what they say. They feel like they can ride up. And oftentimes, I kind of get, I kind of, Patrick kind of rolls me the wrong way because he won't let me loose on them <laughs> like I need to get loose on them. You know? We'll talk I, to I, him. I, I, I'll I, talk I, to him. I'll yeah. talk to him about that. <laughs> I, I, yeah, you, you know, because these people, you know, because the more power... The more power you give them, the more they take. Yeah, absolutely. And when you don't stand up, and when yeah. you don't stand up and exercise your right, your Second Amendment right, your Fourth Amendment right, your Fifth, your Sixth, when you don't stand up and exercise those rights, then they you, feel compelled to take. If you know, to if, take that if, to empower themselves with that. I would, I would paraphrase Judge Learned Hand, who said. Mm-hmm. To claim one's rights, one must be a belligerent claimant. And if you don't claim them, you lose them, pal. They'll override you. You lose them. Uh, they do I, it every time. I want to get to Doug before the show ends here, if he had a question or something. Go ahead. So thanks for calling, Mike, and thanks for your input. Doug, front and center. Did Doug leave? I think he got, I think we marginalized him and he left. Well, I hate that. Oh Doug. my God! I'm sure sorry, Doug. But well, we're well, har- well, Roger, can you hear me? With, yeah, I hear you, Brent. Brent. Yeah, I wanted to ask a question because we're about at the end. Yeah. I miss. I didn't get to this, and I want to ask Larry. Larry, if you could tell us anything after the calculus of your life and all that you've done now that you're retired, what should each one of us give us? What you believe each one of us could well be doing that would help? Instead of just sitting here and being outraged, what could we do? Well, the all of uh, seems to me uh, done a tremendous work in getting informed and understanding the nature of the problem, uh, and I don't think it comes as any surprise 
to you, Brent, that I would suggest that people might want to uh, take the next obvious step and to start taking action. The, the one thing that we found at Gun Owners of America over the years is that when there's uh, enough people in the jurisdiction represented by a politician, uh, they listen. They may not like it. They may not want to listen. And certainly they may not want to take appropriate action. But if there's enough heat put on them, then very often, not always, very often, they're going to respond as they should. So uh, to go back to Everett Dirksen, uh, the old Illinois senator, when I feel the heat, I see the light. Yeah, one of my favorite sayings. I sure want to thank you for spending time with us today, Larry, and hopefully you'll come back at some point, maybe when you've read the book. I'd love to get your observations when you've had a chance to ingest some of that info and uh, of course i always love friday shows with brent as the audience does and everyone that contributed today i'll repost this show immediately take about an hour to get it uploaded over on cast c-a-s-t box.fm and again larry thank you so much uh brent we'll see you next friday i'm going to do your deal for you commonlawyer.com commonlawyer.com and anybody that is feel so moves you should sign up and join gun owners of america and support that fine uh, organization the only no nonsense gun lobby isn't that it larry yes sir it is there you go thanks everybody i sure appreciate it it was a good show today we covered a lot of good ground and i'll see you on monday hope you got something to ruminate on over the weekend here brent we'll see you next week my friend thank you so much Hey, 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 hey,